Hello, and welcome to our 2023 U.S. Life Sciences Regulatory Outlook podcast series. I'm Greg Levine, head of the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group at Ropes and Gray, based in Washington, D.C. Earlier this month, I sat down with several of my colleagues from our Washington, D.C. office to discuss our expectations for the coming year. I was joined by Kelly Combs, Josh Oyster, and Beth Wyman from our Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group, and Margot Hall from our Healthcare Practice Group. We had a robust discussion that we are releasing as a four-part podcast series. What you will be listening to today is part three of that conversation, in which Beth and Margot discussed what we might see in the courts, including litigation challenges against the agencies, enforcement litigation by the government, and other matters. Why don't we turn now to talk a bit about what we might see in the courts, whether it's enforcement litigation by the agencies or litigation against the agencies or any other types of litigation that we think will be important in 2023. Margot, in your world, what do you expect to see on this front? Well, if 2022 was the year of legislative action, I think this will be the year of litigation in the drug pricing arena. And three areas to watch in particular First, litigation challenging accumulators, maximizers, third-party funders, right? These programs that are dramatically altering the coverage and access landscape for patients in the commercial market. Payers and pharmacy benefit managers continue to use utilization and cost management controls, especially in connection with higher cost specialty drugs. So the longstanding practices still exist, formulary exclusions, tiering, prior authorization, but there are also newer controls that have surfaced in recent years, including designating separate specialty drug lists that have distinct cost-sharing terms, mandating the use of specialty pharmacies as a condition of accessing drugs, and the proliferation of accumulators, maximizer programs, and these third-party funder programs, all of which individually and collectively alter the ways that patients are able to actually access their drugs. There are several lawsuits that are underway related to these payer and third-party practices, some under the Administrative Procedure Act and some under state law. First, Along with other patient advocacy organizations, the HIV and Hepatitis Policy Institute is challenging HHS's rules that permit ACA plans to adopt accumulator programs. The plaintiffs have alleged that HHS's policy conflicts with the Affordable Care Act's plain language, conflicts with the agency's own regulations, and violates the Administrative Procedure Act. Separately, in district court, a manufacturer has brought a lawsuit against a vendor, Save on SP, that administers a third-party funder program on behalf of plans and PBMs. The manufacturer alleges that these arrangements deceptively induce plan members to enroll in the manufacturer's patient assistance programs, violating the terms and conditions of those programs, resulting in tortious interference with the contract between the manufacturer and the member and a violation of New York's deceptive trade practice law. The court recently denied Savon's motion to dismiss. Discovery in that litigation is underway and could lend additional visibility into third-party funder practices. The second category of litigation I'll be watching is 340B litigation. Um, there is ongoing litigation between HRSA and manufacturers over the role of contract pharmacies in the 340B program, 
in late 2021 and early 2022, four federal district courts vacated HRSA's letters asserting that manufacturers' policies restricting discounts to contract pharmacies violated the statute. More recently, the Third Circuit issued an opinion and order in the consolidated pharmacy cases for Sanofi, Novo Nordisk, and AstraZeneca. The court decided in favor of the manufacturers by concluding that HRSA's manufacturer violation letters were unlawful and that these three manufacturers' restrictions on delivering covered outpatient drugs to contract pharmacies does not violate Section 340B. The court enjoined HHS from enforcing against those three manufacturers its interpretation of Section 340B. Um, so this litigation is still underway. Each court, though, has offered slightly different reasoning for its decision. And, you know, with cases still on appeal and potential differences in the rationale, is it possible that these cases will go up to the Supreme Court? Right. Maybe. I think the 340B litigation will continue to unfold over the course of this year. And then finally, there's the big question of will we see Inflation Reduction Act related litigation? I anticipate a lot of scrutiny over agency decision making, perhaps even more so since the agency does not appear to be undertaking formal notice and comment rulemaking. Thank you, Margot. Um, Beth, why don't we turn to you? You are yourself a litigator at, in the Office of Chief Counsel at FDA. What, what are you seeing or what do you expect to see in 2023? Well, I was going to focus primarily on, on what we can expect in the enforcement side, but I think I would re be remiss if I didn't just mention a decision that came down just this week in the District Court of D.C., Pharma had challenged FDA's uh, regulation issued during the, the Trump administration to allow the importation of medicines from, from Canada. And the district court did just dismiss that complaint on standing grounds, finding that in the absence of an impending approval of an importation program, none of the plaintiffs could show harm. There's no, no longer a challenge um, that's live. We'll see what happens when the time comes uh, for FDA to approve one of these state importation uh, programs. And I, I know, I think the state of Florida has now started really pushing FDA now to, to go ahead and approve its um, its program. So that's a, a very recent development that I think we'll, we'll need to continue to watch. On the enforcement front, I mean, look, I, I think every year we can look to the past year as a guide to where enforcement is for the coming year, because because we don't see, you know, huge um, in changes in, in enforcement priorities. I mean, at the end of the day, FDA is tasked with protecting public health and and um, ensuring product safety. And, and that's where we really get a lot of uh, the enforcement focus. You know, as inspections are increasing, as uh, investigators are back out there conducting inspections, manufacturing practice issues are going to continue to be uh, front and center. Um, I mean, food safety, again, we've seen a lot of attention to food safety. Um, I'm sure we'll talk more later about um, reorganizations and reformulations of the human foods program because of real concern and scrutiny about whether or not the agency is doing enough um, on that front. So I, I have no doubt we'll see more um, attention to enforcement in, in the food safety front, though FDA has been all over that, you know, in the past couple of years. Now that the enforcement discretion period is over uh, on the tobacco front, we started to see more enforcement uh, against the introduction of uh, tobacco products that uh, were required to have and did not have um approval from FDA and we're focused mostly on um on vaping 
devices. We saw a ton of warning letters, and then we saw several injunctions in, in 2022. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. Um, data integrity, transparency with FDA, these issues are always of critical importance to the agency. And when FDA sees or whistleblowers report a lack of transparency, whether it's doctoring or fabricating documents in the context of clinical trials, in the conflict, uh, in the context of um, manufacturing practice, GMP records, if it's in submissions, you know, I think we can expect to see that FDA will take action um, against companies engaged in that kind of behavior. I think it is possible we will see um, COVID fraud cases uh, continue to percolate involving pandemic products that were supported by the federal government, where funding was provided by the federal government, but there were regulatory lapses, and uh, where the government now is saying that federal monies were inappropriately expended. I mean, there were a couple of subpoenas that were issued. We haven't seen much publicly there, but uh, I wonder if we will see... Um, we will see uh, action on that front in the coming year. At some point, the uh, emergency use authorizations are going to be terminated or expire most likely. And products that don't have regular approvals in place or clearances in place, they're gonna, those products are going to have to be cleared from the marketplace. And presumably FDA will focus on those that provide the greatest um, risk to public health, but it's possible we will see uh, maybe not till the tail end of next year or the beginning of the following year. I, I expect we'll see some enforcement on that front. I don't think we've moved fully beyond um, a focus on opioids and controlled substances. I mean, um, th that is a, a favorite for the Department of Justice. I think we have seen some movement uh, from a focus on on manufacturers to a focus on distributors and pharmacies and healthcare practitioners. Um, that may not be um, fulfilling what the government sees as their obligations to be prescribing and dispensing these products carefully um, and in line with um, with accepted practices. Um, these cases may get harder for the government uh, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's cases in, in Ruan and Khan cases, which read a knowledge requirement um, into the Controlled Substances Act with respect to the charges uh, that have been favorites against HCPs uh, and, and to, to some extent against, against pharmacies. And so we'll see uh, how DOJ moves forward in the aftermath of those cases. I think another uh, important area to be focusing on in the coming year are developments involving case resolution and post-resolution compliance. DOJ, uh, from the most senior officials, have been um, issuing guidance and making statements about the importance of ensuring robust compliance infrastructures. Um, we have alerts on, on these topics as well. There is guidance um, that we expect from the Consumer Protection Branch, uh, which is the department within DOJ that's primarily responsible for enforcement of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And we expect guidance from them on self-disclosure uh, in line with um, Maine Justice's guidance on self-disclosure. And the department has talked about how it's really trying to incentivize uh, companies to report lapses. And if they do so, then um, then DOJ wouldn't prosecute. Um, and DOJ said it can expect that different departments of DOJ will issue their own policies. And so with respect to FDA regulated companies, we're waiting to see one 
from CPB, I think once that guidance is out, it's going to get tougher for companies that don't take advantage um, of the self-disclosure um, incentives. Guidance is also expected from DOJ with respect to when um, in case resolutions uh, it expects to be appointing monitors. It'll be important to be looking out for that. Um, and, and I'll also just note that the Consumer Protection Branch, CPB, has um, created a new corporate compliance and policy unit. I think that unit has 13 or 14 dedicated attorneys that are going to be focused on monitoring compliance obligations following corporate resolutions. This is really important. CPB attorneys have announced that uh, we can be looking for um, template agreements. Like soon we will be seeing resolutions that will have... Uh, Standard provisions, non-negotiable compliance provisions that they expect most agreements, especially in the non-prosecution and deferred prosecution agreement context, will look like. Um, I think we can expect that there will be non-negotiable provisions on certifications of compliance, on reporting of regulatory violations, potentially on monitorships. I think this um, attention to post-resolution compliance, especially in the NPA and the DPA context, raises very important questions as to whether an NPA or a DPA ultimately is the better way to resolve a case uh, than a standard plea. So I think these are all issues that um, we'll have to be taking a close look at in the coming year. Thank you very much, Beth. Yeah, that topic that you just mentioned about the non-negotiable provisions and the oversight of some of these resolutions, I know is one that's come up in a number of panels. I did one in the spring at a Food and Drug Law Institute. You did one more recently at the enforcement conference, right, at Fidley. And so there's lots of issues that are going to need to be worked out on what that's going to mean in practice and how that's going to be administered. Yeah. And one thing I didn't mention, but it came up on these panels and was a real hot topic was, is DOJ going to be stepping on FDA's toes in terms of post-resolution compliance, especially in cases that um, involve sort of manufacturing practice and, and specialized FDA knowledge or policy goals. Yeah, that, that is one of the big issues there. Thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in today. We will continue to provide additional news and analysis about regulatory developments and emerging issues from the federal government throughout 2023. You can access that information on our Capital Insights page on our main Ropes & Gray webpage, www.ropesgray.com. By listening to any of our Ropes Talk podcasts, including the past episodes of this podcast series, in our podcast newsroom on our website, or by subscribing to Ropes Talk wherever you listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Be sure to check out part four of this podcast series in the coming days. Thanks again for listening.